Our first reading today is Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The second reading is Romans 12, 1 through 5. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. The word of the Lord. First, uh, I should introduce myself. I'm Bradley Hoffbauer. Um, my family and I have not been around here for too long, and so um, we've been attending here for about nine months. Uh, and my wife, Beth, and I have lived here in the Twin Cities uh, for what will be 10 years this coming May, which feels like a long time. Um, hard to believe, actually. We moved here in 2009 from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, my wife, Beth, had attended medical school there for four years. And, and until then, um, I had lived in Illinois all my life. I grew up on a farm in central Illinois where my dad still raises beef cattle and grows corn and soybeans. So if I say the word crick instead of creek, or holler instead of hollow, you will know why that is happening at that time. <laughs> uh, before I dive into our text today, I just want to share an encouragement with you all. Um, on at least two what I would call significantly mundane experiences or occasions in the last nine months, uh, my wife and I have been lifted by this community. Tiny gestures of support for our family in completely tenseless moments, very unexpectedly 
and at times overwhelmingly moved me to almost tears. These moments truly were, had to be their kind of moments. Uh, if I tried to explain them now, I wouldn't do them justice, and they would seem just as insignificant as they seemed at the time to everyone standing around us, um, except for me. In moments where I felt empty, people here came around us, our family, fully unprompted, and did small things that, for me at least, filled me to the brim. So for that, I thank you, and I thank all of you for creating a culture and a community where people respond to the Holy Spirit without even knowing that it's the Holy Spirit. Now, since I can't think of any transitions and couldn't, I'm just going to dive right into Matthew 22. <laughs> um, at first glance, I was terrified of this passage, and hopefully you are too. Uh, as I spent some time considering it, I did really start to appreciate the depth, uh, the grace and acceptance, and the challenge that Jesus presents in this story. What we really get at the beginning of this parable is the entire story of God's relationship with Israel after the Exodus. It's what we get, Matthew 22. For a thousand years, God was inviting the people of Israel to a wedding feast, which we can correlate to the kingdom of God, the reign of God on earth, or the kingdom of heaven, as we call it. However, as the parable goes, for some reason, Israel hates this idea. Um, so some people just ignore the invitation, go on doing what they were doing before. However, some people are so angry by the invitation to come to a wedding, uh, the reign of God, that they decide to kill the messengers. And you can read that as Old Testament prophets. So, spoiler alert here, once you hear about the reign of God, you might also hate it too, so just be ready for that. Um, anyway, the king is so angry, he decides to attack those people. Here you can read that as uh, the fall of the, the temple in Israel, um, the taking over of Israel by the Assyrians and the Persians and the Romans and everybody who wants to take over uh, Israel and doesn't really care about Israel, really. And then the king decides to invite everyone else. P.S. That's us. Now, if the parable wrapped up there, we would all be happy because we're all in church today and we all accepted the invitation. Right? But it doesn't end there. Frustratingly, uh, as the parable wraps up, parable wraps up, we get this really frustrating last line about how some people will show up with the wrong clothes on. And since I'm nearly always underprepared, I immediately read myself as the one who's getting bound, tied, gagged, and thrown into the outer darkness in this story. So. As I often say to my daughter, honey, the problem is a three, and your response is a 10, right? When we have a problem that is a three, our response should be a three. 
In this parable, we have a problem that seems like it's a three, and Jesus is kind of <laughs> responding at a 10. So something is going on here. Clothing is weird, isn't it? It's really weird. No other animals wear clothing. It's really hard to explain why we wear clothing and how it might have started. For this one really weird thing, clothing, I really love the allegory of Genesis 1 through 3. It's fantastic for this. Um, and specifically, the passage in Matthew 22, when I get to this spot where there's an issue with clothing, it drives me right back to Genesis 1 through 3. So let's jump there. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, some people have a life verse. For me, this might be it. I absolutely love this passage of Scripture. So Genesis 1, 26 to 27, we find out our true identity, an identity that cannot be changed no matter how hard we try. And oh, how hard do we try. You all know the story, Adam and Eve, Eve and Adam, they totally blow it. Uh, they ruin the whole deal. And when they do this, Genesis 3-7 happens. Clothing. Well, fig leaves. Not really clothing. Terrible clothing, but still you get the idea. Shame, hiding, psychology, blah, 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 whatever, fig leaves, you get the point. But then, Genesis 3.21, they're already clothed. Genesis 3.21 happens. Let me read it for you. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God clothed them. Here's what I'm, here's what I think. I'm convinced that this whole image-bearing thing that started in Genesis 1 and clothing thing from Genesis 3 are tied together. See what I did there? Tied together because they're clothes, the fig leaves thing. Just kidding. Okay. Just move on. Uh, you ever go somewhere, <laughs> you ever go somewhere dressed totally inappropriately for the occasion? Let's try this. I want you to try this this summer. Go to the beach fully dressed. Like this. It just feels weird. You know what? Even weirder, put on a bathing suit and just go anywhere where there's not water. <laughs> really strange. Really strange. Why do we care about this? Why is it so wrong to be wearing the wrong thing in the wrong place? I wonder if clothing, literally the clothing that we wear, can very unconsciously either affirm our identity back to ourselves and say something along the lines of, I belong. I know who I am and I know my purpose. 
I think clothing can do this, or does this, really. Very subtly, even unconsciously, affirms to us, you belong here. You know who you are, and you know your purpose. Or think about when you see someone wearing inappropriate clothes, clothes that make you feel uncomfortable. One of my first thoughts is, they don't belong here. At least, not in that outfit. Try to take your swimsuit to the grocery store. So not only can clothing reaffirm our proper identity when we do belong, it can also convey an improper identity that we don't belong, don't know who we are, and don't know our purpose. And I believe that is what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 22. This man has accepted the wrong identity. Uh, a few years ago for me, this reality of all of us as image bearers, this concept, this Genesis 1 idea, sunk deep into my bones as a person. Um, I was at a point in my life a few years ago when I was questioning all of these things. Do I belong? Do I know who I am? And do I have a purpose? It started way back in 2006. My friend Michael called me, mostly out of the blue, and asked me a question that pretty much ruined my life. He asked me if I would train to complete an endurance running race. Let's be honest, I'm not racing anyone anywhere. It is a running event, not a race. Let's be clear about the title from the beginning here. I had two letters for Michael, N and O, no. You see, not only was I not a runner, I hated running. Never played a sport in high school or college. I'm a musician person and that's what I do. I stay away from anything regarding physical activity because it's terrible. But then, my friend Michael said that we would be doing this to help mothers half a world away whose babies were dying from malnutrition. So I still said no. <laughs> I hate running. But then my wife told me I was getting out of shape, so I said I would do it if she did it. So, 2006, four days a week, my wife and I trained, sometimes together, sometimes on our own. We walked a lot. We jogged, at least that's what I call it, a lot. Sometimes we ran. Mostly we fought, <laughs> but sometimes we didn't. And during this time, our marriage changed, and something changed in us. During this time, we shared this crazy story that we had been invited into with our friends and family, and some of them donated, and we raised about $800 that year, to my surprise. 
Event weekend came, not race weekend. It's not a race. I'm not racing anyone. It's an event. Event weekend came. We joined about 30 other people who were doing the same thing. And the day before the event, we all shared a pasta lunch together. So during this lunch, my friend Michael, knowing that I'm not scared of a microphone, asks me to come up and share a few words about the experience with the others. So, being totally unprepared, like the man in the story, and like I always am, but totally willing, I get up to share some thoughts. I get five words in, and I just start crying. And then my crying turns to sobbing, and my sobbing turns to blubbering, and I can't say any words. Until eventually my wife, who hates public speaking, walks up, takes the mic away from me, says five words about what the experience was like, puts the microphone back, and guides me back to my seat where I sit down. I did not understand what had happened that had shaken me so deeply to my core. Fast forward a few years, 2009, Michael asks me to come on staff with World Vision so that I can invite other people into this same thing. I had the same two letters for him at the time, but the Holy Spirit convinced me that I needed to try this. So as I did, I told people all kinds of things about why they should do what I did in 2006 and what I had continued to do. I told people about how exercise is so good for us and about how stepping through fear will change us and about how helping others is what we're supposed to do. But pretty soon these sentences grew stale and I got tired of them. And honestly, I didn't believe them and I wasn't compelled by them anymore. So what if exercise is good for me? So what if stepping through fear will change me? So what if I'm supposed to help others? It's hard. In fact, it's too hard. It's painful, and I don't like it. It was a few years after that that I stumbled on this image-bearing passage in Genesis, and something woke up inside of me. I started searching. I remember the day, standing in my house, searching through the Old Testament for, for mentions of image-bearing behavior in the Old Testament. I could find none. So I moved on to the New Testament, and lo and behold, Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is the image of God, I thought. And so are we. Then Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Up until Jesus, our only instruction about what image bearing actually meant for our living, for our going in and going out, waking up and laying down, the instruction was tied up in the entirety of the Old Testament. 
But now we have a clear picture of exactly what it means to be the image of God. Now we have a perfectly clear picture. And if we believe that Jesus is the full, complete, and exact representation of God, then we should look to his final, most epic act to understand the very root of that image, full and total sacrifice in order to gift unhindered, full and total life to us and to the world. And although the Old Testament writers didn't have Jesus, they did get it right once in a while. Listen to this from Isaiah 58, 6, probably my second favorite passage of all time. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them rather, to hide, rather than to hide yourself from them. Then, then your light will break out like the dawn and your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You will cry out and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke, from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry, and if you satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom, even your gloom, will be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and he will satisfy your desires even in scorched places, and he will make your bones strong. Yes, when I had put these pieces together, that experience of sobbing at my first event in 2006 came rushing back to me. This is why I had been broken to my core. Because I had poured myself out for the hungry, I had literally satisfied the desires of the afflicted, and God had made my light to rise in the darkness. He had made even my gloomy days seem like the noon day. He had satisfied my desires, even in my scorched places, and had made even my bones strong. Even strong enough to finish an endurance running event. In 2012, I had the chance to go meet the hungry, to meet the afflicted, to find out if we really could satisfy their desires, and what I saw blew my mind. I visited a community in Kenya. We've got a picture up here to show you. And during our visit, they took us halfway up this mountain to a thing called a water pan. This is a water pan that's not filled with water because it's brand new. The grown men in this community had never had water access their entire lives and their parents' entire lives and their parents' entire lives. They were literally bouncing up and down with excitement. And if you've ever seen grown, man from, grown men from a quiet culture bounce up and down, you know something is going on. 
They're bouncing up and down because if you look in the distance, you can see what's coming down from the sky for the first time that's about to fill this water pan with water and bring water to a little girl like this that we got to meet when we came down off of the mountain. She will live her entire life in this community with access to clean water, and her life will be different. She was afflicted, and she was brought satisfaction. I was surprised. I'm still surprised. I'm surprised that Jesus invites us into his same sacrificial, behaving, life-giving adventure, and that in the very process of literally losing our lives, we find them. That God would answer prayers of the hungry in this crazy way. I'm amazed that he gave us his image. That even when we forsake that image, he dresses us in the right clothes. So that we are reminded that we do belong, who we are, and that we have a mission in front of us. So, now I'm going to do to you what my friend did to me in 2006. I'm inviting you to come with me, everybody in the room. Come with me on this pour yourself out for the hungry mission. Yes, you. Come with me, and together we will train for the Twin Cities Marathon this coming October and bring water to some people who are praying right now that we would say yes. We have a plan called the Couch to Finish Line Plan. It starts in April, and it will literally take you from the couch to the finish line, maybe back to the couch. <laughs> Over the last 13 years, 75,000 people have done this. We step through fear, through pain, through every unknown, and the first step led to two steps, and those two led to 10 more, and 10 more steps led to 100 more steps. We'll walk, we'll jog, some of you might even run part of the time. It will hurt, and sometimes you might even believe that you're losing your very life when you're doing it. And I hope that you are. Most of you right now are hearing two voices. One of them says, get this guy off the stage. <laughs> Bind his arms, gag his mouth, and throw him into the outer darkness, gnashing of teeth. Told you you might not like the kingdom of God. But the other voice is saying, do not be afraid. Stand up. Follow me. You can do this. I am with you until the end of the age. If you are hearing that voice, then after the service today for about 10 minutes, we're gonna meet right here. So everybody here is already signed up, right here. If you're sitting here, you're already on the team. <laughs> Doesn't mean you're in if you come to find out more, but if you're feeling a nudge, I really invite you to pay attention to the nudge. As of last weekend here in the Twin Cities, we had more than 300 people in churches just like this one who said yes already. And some of them were just like you. Some of them were bored. 
scared, totally unsure, but they took one step. Romans 12, 1 through 5. Therefore, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That we would bear his image and that even when we didn't for a while, we can turn to him and let him dress us in the clothes that remind us that we do belong, remind us of who we are, and remind us that we do have a mission. Let me pray.